Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, my question this morning uh, for each of us is, what if you could be loved with a love that is stronger than death? What if you could be loved with a love that is stronger than death? It's the theme of so many movies and so many plays and novels. I think every Hallmark Christmas movie has that as a something that's a bit like a Hallmark movie out there today as the snow falls. If you're watching online, you won't know that we're having a very lovely snowy morning here. We're just absent one beleaguered author and one empathetic golden retriever and a train station away from being in a Hallmark movie ourselves. Uh, that's the way that most of them start anyway. I've, I've seen the beginning of most of the Hallmark Christmas Christmas movies. I've yet to make it all the way through, but I have goals. And uh, it's the question that, uh, that pops into our dating lives when we start to get serious. Uh, you know, what would it be like to be loved with a love that is stronger than death? We celebrate strength of love at reunion times. We celebrate strength of love when friends get together. We hunger for a love stronger than death, uh, certainly when we come to funerals and memorial services. But we even hear it echo uh, in the marriage vows, don't we? That we commit uh, to love each other until death do us part. We feel the sting of death strongest when we grieve those that we have loved the most. What if you could be loved with a love that was stronger than death? If you could be loved with that quality of love, would it change how you loved other people in your life today? That's the question. Would it transform uh, your moments of grief when death comes close? God, through the gospel, loves his people with a love like that, with a love that is stronger than death. The Thessalonians had learned this from the Apostle Paul. We had seen this throughout the letter as we've studied it uh, this fall. We saw in the very beginning verses in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul says to the church, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction that Jesus' death to deliver us from the wrath of God, Jesus' resurrection to new life and his ascent into heaven uh, to rule as the true king are core outcomes of God's love for us. Verse 9 of chapter 1, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So God loves us up to, at, and through Jesus' death. Jesus' death for our sin changes what we should expect at death, welcome and not wrath, embrace and not exclusion, acceptance, not rejection, a future and not being forgotten. So faith in Jesus confirms that Christians participate in a love that is stronger than Jesus' death and a love that is stronger than our death. But what about the grief that we feel when a Christian loved one dies? 
I mean, grief is, is never really hypothetical, is it? I mean, we don't really talk about grief hypothetically as much as we experience it. And some of us are very much in a grieving place this morning right now, and all of us have been or will be. We understand that. And grief had struck the church in Thessalonica. Paul wanted God to establish the church in Thessalonica, to confirm, to point their hearts uh, in the direction of holiness, knowing that they had a future, that King Jesus was coming back with all of his saints, that there was more future love to be had, but at point of writing, Jesus had not come back yet. And now death had touched the congregation. They believed in Jesus' resurrection. They anticipated the king's return. Uh, Some of them had even faced persecution for their faith. But what was unsettling to them was the very same question that we ask when we grieve. What about the Christian dead now? What about the Christian dead today? What what happens when death strikes a Christian loved one during this in-between time? Yes, Jesus' resurrection has happened. Yes, Jesus has come uh, promised to come back in the future, and we believe that. But what about right now? What about this moment? What hope can we have for our reunion with them? What would it be like to be loved with a love that was stronger than death and have it apply to the grief that is common to the human experience. That's what Paul is after in these verses. Uh, So the first thing that he wants us to to connect is grief, uh, God's love, and hope. Grief, God's love, and hope. It's natural that when loved ones grieve, our impulse is to console. Uh, It's often the case that we struggle to know what to say. I don't know if you've had that experience. Grief comes to a friend and you don't know exactly what to say. Our words might be heartfelt and true. They don't feel strong enough to bear up under the loss that others feel. And the same was true in Paul's world as well. It's interesting uh, that scholars have actually gone back and compiled lists of letters of consolation uh, written in the first century. Uh, It's a bit like going to a first century Hallmark store, which, by the way, is the second Hallmark reference in this sermon, if you're keeping score at home. Um, But you can go to uh, the, the books, and you can dig out what, the, what would be in the condolence section of a first century Hallmark store. And uh, the, the list of cards w- would be like this. So uh, imagine that, that you want to send a card to someone, uh, and this would be uh, kind of in your card section. Death is inevitable. Death is the fate of all, kings and beggars, rich and poor. The person's memory and honor will live on in spite of death. The funeral and tomb are a place of great honor for the deceased. Death releases one from evil in life. Either death is non-existent or does not matter to the dead, or they are in a happier place. These would be your options. How hopeful do you feel? How hopeful do you feel? Non-existence or vague optimism are are probably the most hopeful uh, in the list if you're browsing through uh, the Thessalonican Hallmark store. But I'm here to tell you 
uh, that after 26 years of serving at funerals, uh, there are a lot of similarities between these cards from the first century and how we console ourselves and others. Uh, Some funerals are marked by actual despair. These are the hardest funerals, the the funerals where uh, there are no answers, where there are no expectations, where there are no uh, inbreakings of hope. You've been to funerals like these. Some funerals are marked by stoic denial. Death is a reality. It's the end of a process. There's no need to be sentimental. And I I leave those funerals wondering, if there's no need to be sentimental, what does this actually say about about the loss that's been encountered? If death is just non-existent at the end of life and shouldn't provoke grief, what does it say about the life that was lived? And I think that that by far the experience that I have, apart from being at Christian services, uh, is a naive optimism that goes like this. To transition to a happier state of existence, uh, she didn't believe anything particularly religious, but if God is fair, I'm sure she'll grade out well on the curve. And it's my opinion, uh, Dave's opinion, that this a kind of naive optimism borrows capital from 2,000 years of Christian influence on culture. That for 2,000 years, Christians have said, there's a way to grieve differently. There's a way to look at, at death differently. And, and we've arrived at a moment uh, in our culture where people no longer believe the reasons why you can believe differently, grieve differently. They just think that you should be able to grieve differently. And so uh, we come to funerals and they're marked by more of a naive optimism than any kind of real hope. Unbelievers borrow hope from Christianity that maybe death isn't the end. And this is my majority experience at funerals, except for, fourthly, the Christian experience, which is grief with hope. Yes, we grieve. Death is part of the curse of sin. And what grief looks like is, as an experience, highly individual. I got a card back this week, a sweet card from a friend uh, whose husband, a, a mentor of mine, passed away very quickly from leukemia earlier in the year. I, I wrote her a note. Uh, I told her some stories of the influence that she and her husband had on me, and she wrote uh, a note back, and she, she just said, you know, two sentences, thanks for the card. Grief is hard. Grief is hard. And, and this is a person who's been a believer for some at least seven decades. But there is also hope. And that's what Paul wants to write to the church about. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus's resurrection from a real death his emergence from a real grave in a real physical body on a real Sunday in a real cemetery in a real city, Jerusalem, is the event in human history that transforms 
how we grieve. Jesus' resurrection with respect to grief is instructive, it's inclusive, and it's exclusive. Uh, It's instructive. Jesus died and rose again. Paul makes this statement to the church as plain fact. And uh, as uh, writers, I I think of the work that N.T. Wright did on the resurrection, uh, which is helpful in many, many ways. He he, uh, reminds us that, you know, first century people and 21st century people are, I mean, we're not more sophisticated in the 21st century than people were in the first century. We might know a few more things scientifically, but first century people knew about ghost stories, they, they, they knew and had theories about what happened after death, and they knew about resurrection. They knew what it was like to be physically dead, and then they knew what it was like, uh, or, or at least understood what it would be like to be physically alive again after being physically dead, and they understood that that was a very different thing than believing in a ghost story. It was a very different thing than believing in a myth. And Paul uses this language that Christ died and rose again very specifically to say that that this is what we are talking about. This is what Christianity is built on, not on a ghost story, not on a fable, not on an apparition, but on a, a, a real new physical life after a real and public physical death. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, but, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That Jesus' resurrection is instructive in terms of what resurrection is like. That, that, that it is a new embodied physical existence after a real embodied physical death. It's also an inclusive event. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That phrase, through Jesus, uh, captures a concept that we talk about from time to time, uh, the idea that a Christian is spiritually united to Jesus. That, That when we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus so that we are in him, We are united to him so that when he died, we died spiritually. When he rose, we rose spiritually. Because of this spiritual union, Paul says in Romans 6, uh, that we were united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He died, he arose, we died in union with him. We will arise from death united to him. Uh, that, that this is the great Christian hope of resurrection is not, not only that it's something that will happen out in the future, but that it's tied to something that has already happened in the past. Uh, that because Jesus has risen, that those who are spiritually united to him will arise, that, that we are alive in him, that this is an inclusive event. Now, now notice how Paul qualifies this language, that God will bring uh, that, the, well, let's back it up a little bit. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him the really cool people who have fallen asleep. 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him the really handsome people who fall asleep. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him the, the really bright people, the really competent people, the high achievers. No. No qualification. Faith in Jesus, united to Jesus, God will inclusively bring you alive again. That, that the hope of the resurrection is for all. But it is also exclusive in that it does not pertain to those who are not spiritually united to him. That's the exclusivity part. So it's inclusive of all who believe in him, but it is exclusive of, of none who, who don't believe in him, which is a terrible double negative, and we'll sort it out after the sermon. But what I mean to say is, is that Paul does not offer any kind of naive optimism to the world. He's like, there is a way to have real hope. But apart from this way of having real hope, there's not an alternative plan. Christian grief is transformed by this real hope. But this is still a look out into, in some ways, a future event. And so I can hear the Thessalonians asking, as maybe you're asking, what about now? What about today? What about this time in between? Well, this is where Paul goes in the second half of verse 14. He talks about God's love and grief and honor. The second half of verse 14 holds hope about the honorable existence of Christians at their dead, uh, at their death and into the future in advance of that future resurrection. It was really, uh, it was a bit sad uh, this week to read through the commentaries and discover what kind of first century non-Christian funeral experiences were like. I mean, they were pretty hopeless events. I mean, there was, um, there was a, a mythology about life after death. But the mythology of life after death was mostly held by, you know, kind of a few philosophers, but not, you know, ordinary folks. Ordinary folks did not have a, a lot of hope when death came into life. So they went to their Hallmark store and they bought hopeless cards and they gave each other hopeless cards and they had this hopeless experience. And Paul says, you don't have to live like that. Focus on the words through Jesus, God will bring with him those who fall asleep. The Christian dead live honorably with Jesus today. Now I, I need to help you avoid an error which might not be your error, but it is an error that has um, kind of dogged the church over the years. The phrase fallen asleep is a euphemism. You understand what a euphemism is? It, it, it doesn't mean that the Christians are just actually asleep. The, the, the danger is there's kind of a heresy that's called soul sleep, that, that your soul just goes to sleep. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something that's far more hopeful. So we can avoid that error that the Christian dead are simply asleep until the resurrection, that God's love is stronger than that. He wants us to believe better than that. So in order to parse this out for us, let me have you look just a few verses up into chapter 3 and verse 13. 
This is in Paul's prayer for the church, what he wants for the church. He wants God to establish the hearts of the Christians blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This last phrase, coming with all his saints, connects to an Old Testament passage in a prophet named Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah in chapter 14 uh, is given by God a vision of a future day when God will return to earth. And in verse 5, he says this, he says, uh, to the people you shall flee, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And uh, if you have been around for a moment, you know that all caps LORD uh, in the Old Testament describes the personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, God's personal name. Yahweh will come with his holy ones. So just two observations relevant for us. First, Paul is very happy when he writes to the Thessalonians to substitute the personal name Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, with the name Yahweh from the Old Testament, connecting uh, Jesus of Nazareth with the Lord of the Old Testament. Uh, so that there's not any confusion uh, in Paul's mind uh, about the maximal divinity of Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus is on par with the God of the Old Testament. Maybe not a big deal for us here in the 21st century, but for a first century person, big deal that Jesus of Nazareth would be equated to Yahweh. Secondly, Zechariah may have envisioned Yahweh returning with his angels in the Old Testament. Holy ones uh, is often descriptive of angels in the Old Testament. But according to the, the experts, Paul always uses the word holy ones to describe Christian believers. Saints is the word. That he will return with his saints. So at the end of history... Before the resurrection of physical bodies, King Jesus will return accompanied by who? By his holy ones, by the saints, who are the believers who've gone before. The believers who've gone before, he will bring with him those who've fallen asleep which would lead us to conclude that the souls of believers at death pass immediately into the presence of Jesus. This is from the, the Presbyterian Catechism. The believer's soul is at death, then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they are again united to their souls, end quote. But, but let me just ask you, does that sound like the soul being asleep? It is not the soul being asleep. It is the soul actively engaged in the, the presence of God in a far grander and greater way than we can engage in the presence of God. Because they are, as it is said, they are received into the highest of heavens. They behold the face of God in light and glory. 
waiting the full redemption of their bodies. So, uh, so, so the Christian dead have honorably passed into an existence which, uh, which in some ways is far better than the existence that they had here. And, and they await in that honorable place, in the presence of God, unencumbered by their sin, having been made perfectly holy, in the presence of God, they await the full redemption of their bodies. So, so it's as if, uh, and I mean, we've said it before, it's the basic paradigm, it's good to be a Christian now. It's better to be a Christian next. Uh, and the betterness of being a Christian next includes the, the awaiting of what will be best, the reunion of their body and soul. So the Christian dead live honorably with Jesus today. God, through the, the plain writing of the New Testament, wants us to understand that. And he wants us to understand, secondly, that the Christian dead will return honorably in the future. Do, do you ever experience the fear of missing out? Some of you do. Some of you are not nodding, but I know you do. Others of you don't fear the, the miss, have the fear of missing out, but some of us fear missing out, or, or we've had the experience of seeing the great party on social media that we weren't invited to, and we think, well, how come I wasn't invited to that party? And they're like, well, it's obvious why you weren't invited to that party, Dave. But uh, others of us have the fear of missing out. And I think that the fear of missing out is part of what was plaguing the Thessalonian church. That, that the alive Christians who were grieving the dead Christians believed that Jesus arose, believed he was coming back, and they worried that their dead family and friends were going to miss out when Jesus returned. Because at, at that point in time, Again, it's all in the first generation of Christian faith. It was, it was common that people thought that Jesus was like coming back like right then, like imminently tomorrow. And actually, there's a goodness to that. I mean, I mean, we should probably have more of that in our life, more of that expectation that he might be back this afternoon. But they definitely believed that he was coming back ASAP. And so they wondered, well, what, what about these funerals that we've just been to? They have the fear of missing out. And that probably compounded their grief. Now, next week, Pastor Chris will help us explore more specifically Jesus' future return for our purposes, and just to steal the really good application point from him next week, uh, just focus on verse 15. Keep your eye on, the Christian, uh, on where the Christian dead are when Jesus returns. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul describes Jesus' return like a victory parade, the kind of parade that the Thessalonians would have known about. Like our, our parades are a little bit more ceremonial, Fourth uh, of July ceremonial parade, Memorial Day ceremonial parade. They, they had parades that were maybe a little bit more tied to real life events. General goes out, conquers some city, comes back to the city. Yay, we won! 
on. And, uh, and he's got a parade of his soldiers and the people inside the city are like, hey, it looks like we won. And they, they start to have a, a parade out to him and the king. And there's like these two parades coming together. And the point that Paul is making is that the Christian dead, they're in the parade. They're in the honored position of the parade. Jesus, the king who won the battle, returns. And at the head of the whole thing are the Christian dead. They're in the honored position in the parade right behind the king. They're not forgotten. They're not missing out. They're very much alive. They're very much waiting their new bodies. They're very much ready to worship, serve, enjoy God forever in those restored bodies and in those restored relationships with the Christians who are still alive at the time. That the Christian dead, and don't be afraid to make it personal. Your Christian dead loved ones, your believing family, our believing friends are honorably alive today, awaiting their honorable return in the future, awaiting their spot in the parade. Which, which hints at, in verses 17 and 18, the renewal of relationship in the future. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. A, a, a tiny little book written by a guy named Lemuel Haynes, who I'm sure you all uh, read a lot of Lemuel Haynes. Um, he is a, a, a man in history worth knowing. He was born about 20 years before the American Revolution. Uh, he uh, was an African-American pastor, a Reformed pastor, and he ministered in Vermont and New York. Uh, so he was uh, near contemporary to Jonathan Edwards uh, and others at, at that point in time. And he had a, a long and important ministry uh, and um, some of his sermons are available uh, still down today. And in, I have this little book that are mostly letters that he wrote to his friends. And in a letter that he wrote to his pastor friends, Lemuel Haynes contemplated his own death in, in these words. He's like, my pains are great, but blessed be God, they are not eternal. I long to be in heaven. Oh, what blessed company will be there. I shall see there not only many great and good men who I've seen and loved on earth. But I shall see there, and he names four notable pastors, including Matthew Henry, who you might know. You might have a Matthew Henry commentary at home. I'm going to see these pastors. I shall see Abraham and the prophets and the apostles in the kingdom of glory. These men I have revered on earth and hope to see and converse with them in yonder brighter world, end quote. Who do you want to meet in heaven? Maybe you have some famous Christian figures on your list. Uh, but isn't the answer really your Christian family? Isn't the answer really your Christian loved ones? I don't know exactly how marriage works in heaven. Jesus suggests that we shouldn't expect to be married. But if I get there first, I'm going to be looking for Kim. I'm, I'm going to be bugging her when she shows up, just following her around. Hey, <laughs> what's up? 
let's go talk with Jesus and sort out the whole dishwasher thing. (laughs) Which is a deeply inside joke, which you're never supposed to make in sermons. But we hope for these kinds of reunions in the next world, Christians should expect them. We should expect that our deepest Christian friendships, yes, to include with our Christian spouses, will be renewed in the future. As I mentioned, Jonathan Edwards was a, a near contemporary to Lemuel Haynes, and he actually contemplated this when uh, he was looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Uh, through the power of the internet, I looked up, I'm like, I wonder what Jonathan Edwards thought about these verses, which I'm sure you were wondering too. And so I did the work for you. And uh, one of the things that he reflected on was the renewal of Christian friendship in the future. It's just worth pondering. The renewal of friendships in the world beyond grief. He, he says, and I'll read it in stilted Edwardsian English. It follows that the special affection that the saints have in this world to other saints that are their friends will in some respects remain in another world. I don't see why we should not suppose that saints that have dwelt together in this world and have done and received kindness to each other's souls, have been assistant to each other's true happiness, should not love one another with a love of gratitude for it in another world. And that the joy in meeting these and seeing their happiness is part of the joy that is spoken of. In other words, when we we get to heaven and we re-encounter our Christian spouses and our Christian friends, part of our joy of being there and seeing them is part of the joy of the investments that we've made in each other here so that they get there. The, the, The investments that we've made in our friendships, the investments that we've made in our marriage. And then part of the return will be the, hey, thank you. Thank you for talking to me about Jesus. Thank you for helping bring Jesus into my life so that I could be here with you. The the joy of gratitude. And here's where Edward's hopeful thought for the future takes a sharp turn to the right now. This should move us to lay religion and virtue in the foundation of all our friendships and to strive that the love we have to our friends be a virtuous love, duly subordinated to divine love, for so far as it is so, it will last forever. Death don't put an end to such friendship, nor can it put an end to such friends' enjoyment of each other. End quote. That's a long-winded way of saying that the investments that we make in Christian friendships now, the times that we spend encouraging each other, praying for each other, helping each other resist temptation, helping each other to repent of sin, the moments where you point each other to Jesus, that they follow us into the future. Christians aren't perfect now. Our friendships aren't perfect now. So sowing forgiveness into Christian friendships, into marriage friendships, parent-child relationships, friendships, it, it makes sense both for our happiness now and also in the future. So, I mean, if you let your spouse pick where to go to lunch after church, you're actually investing in your heavenly happiness. I mean, all kidding aside, you can spend all next week in your marriages or in your Christian friendships, investing not only in happiness that will pay off in 2023, but in happiness that will pay off forever. 
in this reunion in the future. So if you know that you are loved with a love that is stronger than death, investing in these kinds of friendships, even if you know, like we know, that that pain will come to them someday, if we live long enough, one of us will say goodbye. It makes all the sense in the world. Christian, you are loved with a love that's stronger than death. It's not a myth. It's not a Hallmark movie. It's an outcome of the gospel. Praise the Lord. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.